Won't you pray with me, church? Uh, Lord, we want that to be true of us. We wanna be a people of devotion, of singularity in terms of our love and our affections towards you and nothing else. Lord, I confess for me and for us, so often we're a divided people with divided loves and priorities. And so we deeply need your grace today and we're certain that we will receive it. And I pray that in that grace, Father, as an example again of that grace, you would pour out your Holy Spirit to help us today, to learn from the text, to be changed by the truth of your love, by the truth of uh, the, the word changed by the, the teachings of your Son who has truth available for us today, should we grab hold of it as it grabs holds of us. Lord, I pray for that. Oh, I pray for that, please. Send your Holy Spirit as we are scattered across the city today. Send your Holy Spirit in a unique way into our lives in an experiential way where we'll know your closeness, where we'll be drawn in by your truth, where we'll be reminded of your love in a way that we believe in it and that our faith grows and that our wisdom grows and that our devotion grows. Lord, we need your Holy Ghost to move us. And so I pray, Father, that you would send your precious Spirit in abundance into our midst, wherever we are today, that we might be changed by your presence, forever changed by your truth, forever changed by your word. This in Jesus Christ's magnificent name that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, hey friends, welcome to a live service of sorts. My name is Ross and it's an absolute privilege and joy to be able to humbly preach the text for us today. We had made the plan originally for this to be our first Sunday back together in limited gatherings and this live broadcast was just gonna be a sharing of one of those gatherings. But as you know, the trajectory of COVID infections in our city has changed all of that. And so let's be praying. Let's be praying for our city. Let's be praying for our hospitals. Let's be praying for our first responders. Let's be praying for our at-risk populations. Let's be praying for those in financial distress. Let's be praying. Let's be praying for a dramatic turnaround in COVID numbers in our city and state. We were saying grace at dinner last night at the Leicester home and, and my son Daniel led the prayer and he said, Lord, could you please get rid of Corona as quickly as possible for you? I was like, that's a good prayer um, because as quickly as possible for him is quickly indeed. And so we're asking God to move and to protect us and to give us faith and to give us wisdom as we navigate this season together. So we landed up changing plans this morning and here we are online, but still together in a sense, even more so for those of you who are watching this in real time live as it is fed out over the internet. It turns out that sharing time and space is a very meaningful part of the human experience. And we've all become all too aware of that reality afresh over the last few months. And we can't share this space today 
but it does feel different somehow, at least for us to be sharing time together, at least in a sense. Now, now let me just say, it is still weird. This is an empty room. I'm looking at a camera that is 50 yards away and I have no idea um, how this is being received out there. I was watching a Tina Fey interview the other night, don't judge me, and we're all consuming all sorts of weird content at the moment, and I was uh, watching this Tina Fey interview, and she's a remarkably smart woman, and she was talking about the dynamics of Saturday Night Live and, and doing comedy on live TV, and, and the stress and the pressure of it was she was saying, you've got no idea if it's working. It could be bombing, it could be blowing up, you just have no idea. And I was watching Tina Fey, and I was saying, yeah, you get it, you get it. I see you, Tina, I knew we were the same, um, and I understand that feeling exactly. And so friends, this is a little bit like an SNL episode, except it'll be altogether less funny, hopefully a little bit more theologically robust, and there is a much lower chance of a Will Ferrell appearance. I don't wanna say no chance, but I wanna manage your expectations. The chances of him appearing are very, very low indeed. And so friends, it's strange, I know. But it's not just strange, it's actually exhausting. People are enduring a lot. The future in many areas looks so unclear. Sue and I sat down last night trying to make schooling decisions for our kids, but it's, it's clear as mud. You've got, you've got no idea what to do next. I was listening to a podcast this week that was talking about how we are all in a collective and shared trauma experience of sorts, and to be honest, it explained a lot of how I am feeling and a lot of what I see in the, in the feelings, in the words, and in the actions of people around me. We are a people in trauma together, and we're not really sure how to process it. You see, our illusion of control, and it always was an illusion, but our illusion of control has been ripped from our hands, and it is jarring. And so what we need is some solid footing. We need the solid footing of some absolute truth. And I only have one place to find that, and that is in the Scriptures, the very Word of God. And so let's jump back into the text today. We're studying some of the parables that are recorded in Matthew's Gospel um, in this little series that we're doing in our prolonged study of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in Matthew 13, 44 today. And what we find is actually a pair of parables. They're really short, they go together, and they teach the same lesson. In essence, the lesson is that a life of following Jesus will require a trade-off. It's a trade of no longer following the paths of this world. You want the kingdom of heaven? Great. You've got to let go of the kingdoms of this world. Have you ever noticed that all of life, especially grown-up life, is essentially a trade? It really is. We trade our time, we trade our, trade our training, we trade our experience. What do we trade it for? A salary, for money, for income. And then we trade that money for things that we feel are worth the sacrifice of the time that it took to earn that money. Uh, the same is true in our lifestyle choices. It's not just about money. We make lifestyle choice trades all the time. We trade pleasures and abstentions from pleasure for a future version of ourselves that we hope will manifest. I hate working out. I know it's not obvious and evident, it really is, I, I, I hate it. You know what I love? I love having just worked out. And so I make a trade, I say, I will work out so that I get the feeling of having 
worked out. And of course, the social media humble brag that goes thereafter, but, but that's the trade that we make. I love eating all of my feelings, especially in, in large tubs of bluebell ice cream. But, but I make a trade in that I go like, man, I know how I will feel having eaten uh, 2,600 calories without having done the workout that I made a bad trade on earlier in the day. And so you make an abstention trade. It's true in relationships. We make trades, compromises to make relationships work. Uh, 15 years ago, my wife Sue made a trade of sorts when she married me. Now, it's not a good trade. I'm not saying it worked out well, but it's a trade. She, she traded some of her freedoms, uh, some of her own ambitions, some of her own plans, not all of them because we formulate these things together, but we all lay things down in order to gain the security of an everlasting covenant that we make for one another. It's a trade. And we are willing to trade more for things that we feel have more value, right? If you think something is precious, then you're willing to give more for it in the first place. So much of, a, of life is a trade based off of perceived value. And that's the purpose of this parable. The parables in this text, we're gonna be introduced to two men who encounter something so valuable that they're willing to trade their entire lives, their whole worlds, everything they have worked for up until that point, they're willing to lay down in order to gain something else, which is extremely precious. Now, everything that they had slaved for up until that point, they prepared to give away in exchange for something that they perceive as better. And so the question for us as we examine the text together today is, what are we willing to give when we discover the precious value of a life in Jesus's kingdom and everything that comes with it? So let's read together in Matthew 13, 44. I'm not going to keep you long here this morning. Here's Jesus speaking, going into another parable. Some of the scholars suggest that this one isn't public, that he's actually moved into a private room um, now, and this one isn't shared more broadly. This is just with his disciples. Either way, he's teaching them what the kingdom of heaven is like. Here's what he said, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like. Now, now let's just stop there for a second to recap two quick concepts that will help us understand what Jesus says next. Firstly, Jesus is speaking in parables, which is a teaching device that literally means to compare one thing to another. And so he's taking some seemingly complex and at the very least abstract ideas and he's comparing them to the most basic ideas of everyday life so that people can understand them. Those, are, those who are humble and willing to lean in anyway. Secondly, the comparison that he's making is with something called the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've read the gospel of Matthew, you, you, you would have heard this phrase again and again and again and again. It's central to the gospel of Matthew. There's over 30 references to the kingdom of heaven in the gospel of Matthews, but he's, uh, Matthew, but he's the only gospel writer to use it. None of the other ones do. They refer to the kingdom of heaven. God when speaking of the same concept. Now, now, why does Matthew do this? Well, some say Matthew uses heaven instead of God as he is a reverent Jewish scribe who doesn't wanna use the name of God in written form. Now, that's a solid argument, except Matthew does use the name of God in written form in other places in his gospel. Many scholars, and I think this is probably the most persuasive, suggest that Matthew uses the term to make it clear 
to his Jewish readers, because that's his primary audience, that the kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom that they expect in this world. It is not going to be found purely in the overthrow of Rome and the political emancipation of the people of Israel. Uh, the people of Israel were oppressed, they were occupied. And so when they hear that God is bringing a kingdom with a king, they think there's gonna be a great liberation politically and sociologically in their day and age that's gonna bring the actual tangible fruition of the nation state of Israel in their midst. That's what they hear. And so Matthew is very careful to say like, it's a kingdom, but it's not like the kingdom you're expecting. It's like the kingdom of heaven. You see, Matthew is cautious to not conflate God's kingdom with nationalism. And so it does feel like we could use Matthew's wisdom again in our day and age. You see, Jesus himself teaches us this when he says the following to Pilate, he's being questioned in John 18. And Pilate says to him, are you a king? Have you got a kingdom? And Jesus is like, I do. He says, but my kingdom, John 18, 36, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus is saying this kingdom is, is not like anything you've ever experienced before. Otherwise we would have already violently taken hold of it. But as it is, I'm laying down my life to secure this heavenly kingdom. And so Matthew is making sure that they know that the kingdom is not purely an earthly construct. But listen, we've got to hold intention as well. Jesus himself keeps telling his listeners that it was available in the here and now of their lives. So this is not us going like, oh, it's just something that comes in heaven. And so we don't expect any of its fruit here in the world. No, no, the message of the kingdom is repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here, it's near you. And in the parables, Jesus is saying, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's available, reach out and touch it. So it's not how you expect, but it's still tangible in the here and now. So what is it? Well, people teach entire uh, semester long courses on this at seminary, and so I don't wanna oversimplify it, but in short, the kingdom of heaven is wherever the rule and reign of Christ is experienced and submitted to. The kingdom of heaven is wherever the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the King, is experienced and submitted to. Now obviously that's ultimately true in heaven, that's why it's gonna be so incredible because everyone submits to the rule and reign of Christ in heaven, but it's also true in pockets here on earth in the here and now, that is why it is not synonymous with the church. The church is part of the kingdom of heaven, but they're not exactly the same thing, why? Because sometimes the church is living subject to the rule and reign of Christ in the here and now, and sometimes it isn't. And so the kingdom is this mysterious and yet altogether tangible thing for us wherever the rule and reign of Christ is experienced and submitted to. Let's jump back to how Jesus is gonna compare it then through these parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven, verse 44, is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Now don't get into the ethics of this parable. Parables have one main meaning, don't get distracted. Shouldn't he declare the, the, the finding of this, uh, this treasure to the original landowner? That's a different discussion, right? Uh, that, that's an interesting one to be sure, but it's a different one. 
uh, it's like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, look, this is a wonderful exchange for him. This is not begrudging duty. He goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Why? He knows that it's full of treasure. He knows it's full value. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. Now, the, the principle is really simple to understand, really difficult to live out, like so many of the teachings of Jesus. Simply stated, it is this. A life submitted to the rule and reign of Christ. That's life in the kingdom, right? A life submitted to the rule and reign of Christ is the most precious thing you can find in this world. It is so precious that you should readily and joyfully exchange everything else you have for that life. Life in the kingdom is precious. And so you should be willing to exchange everything you have for that life. So let's just break it down into a couple of principles. Firstly, Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom of heaven is precious. It's so, so valuable. It's worth more than anything else in this world. He says it's like a treasure buried in a field. It's like an otherwise ordinary piece of land in West Texas that you think is just full of rattlesnakes and then you secretly discover that it's floating on, tops of, on, on the top of tens of thousands of barrels of oil. No one else sees it, but you get a glimpse of the value. And so you put in an offer straight away because you understand the value of that land in a former life, not literally, I don't believe in reincarnation, but when I was significantly younger, uh, I, I made a living of sorts as a drummer. And the problem with making a living of sorts as a drummer is that I spent nearly every cent that I made on more drumming gear, just forever chasing after the one sound that would help us to make it, that would, that would be my unique sound. And I always thought it, it lay in a, another set of drums, another perfectly hand-hammered ride cymbal. And so I had way too much stuff and I was collecting way too much of it. And then I became obsessed with some vintage drums, particularly German ones um, uh, made by a brand called Sonor. And they, they had had a, a range that were handmade out of Canadian maple years years and years ago and I kept trying to find some of these and I couldn't find them and when you did find them they got snapped up so quickly because they were so precious and everyone knew it. And one day a vintage drum dealer friend of mine, a man called Ronnie, called me and he's like, mate, you gotta get down here, you gotta come see something. And an elderly lady had brought in a box of drums that she had been storing in an attic space because her husband had bought them just before they got married and she had decided that there was no ways there were gonna be drums played in her house. And so they made a trade, right? He liked her and so the drums got shifted up to the attic and they remained untouched, unplayed for decades and decades and decades. And she had gone to a couple of pawn shops and people would give her nothing for them because they're like, the kids don't want these kind of drums. These are old school drums, no one's interested in this. They want these modern things. And then she had brought them to my mate Ronnie, who was a vintage gear dealer. And he was like, um, I'll call you back. Um, and so he, he called me up and he was like, mate, you gotta come see it. And I went in and I opened the box and it was like this golden glow, right? This red mother of pearl finish, late 50s, sonar signature, handmade Canadian maple 
perfect four-piece drum set with the jazz sizes, just the right thing that I was looking for, never played, the heads on it had never been touched, everything absolutely original. And no one had any idea, but to me, I'm like, this thing is precious. And so what did I do? I went home, I sold all the other kits, and I made that lady an offer way above uh, what she was expecting to get for it, but way below its market value, I must confess, and I, and, I, and I bought that kit, and it's still the only one that I own today because it was there, hidden in plain sight. No one knew how precious it was. It looked like an old box of junk, and yet it was something really rare and really precious to me. Jesus says that in some ways, the kingdom is a bit like that. Some don't even know what they are looking at, and so they just brush past it. Uh, some aren't aware of its value, and so they aren't prepared to lay down anything significant in its place. But then when some find it, they realize how incredibly valuable it is, and it changes everything about their lives. He also says that it isn't just for those who don't really know it's there. It's also like a priceless pearl that a merchant had been searching for his whole life. Now, in those days, pearls were even more valuable than they are now. They were really rare. They were really difficult to mine and to extract and to bring out and to harvest. And they were kept almost exclusively as the jewelry of royalty. And so uh, pearls of any sort were valuable, but this kind of rare pearl was of extreme value. And when this merchant sees it, his eyes light up. That's what he's been spending his life searching for. See, the point of both of the parables is that the kingdom, friends, a life submitted to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is precious. There is nothing that comes close to the value that is associated with living a life in submission to Jesus, our wonderful King. Nothing. Paul makes this point in Philippians 3 where he says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered a loss because of Christ. Compared to Christ, everything else, garbage. More than that, he says, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. Paul says, nothing, friends, nothing comes close to a life surrendered to Christ. Nothing is like knowing him. Nothing is like his mercy. Nothing is like the grace that comes in his kingdom. Nothing is like his love. Nothing is like his wisdom. Nothing is like his tenderness. Nothing is like his righteousness. There is nothing like him and a life submitted to him. It is precious. Friends, oh, Holy Spirit, help us. It is possible that many of us have just grown too accustomed to the scandalous message of the wonder of Christ's love for us. We have forgotten how precious his blood-bought redemption is and so we aren't willing to trade anything in exchange to grab hold of the great life that he has for us. Life in the kingdom is like a precious pearl or the discovery of a life-changing treasure. It must change the other priorities in your life. Otherwise, I'm not sure you've truly discovered its reality yet. Okay, it is precious. So much so that it has a cost, a high one. So this is the second point of the parable, that the kingdom of heaven isn't just precious, but because it is precious, the kingdom of heaven is also 
costly. And I am aware that when I say precious so many times, I sound a lot like Smeagol. I'm trying to put that out of my head. The kingdom of heaven is costly. Now I've just put it in your head. Praise the Lord for live broadcast. <laughs> what happens here is both men liquidate their assets in a way that would have made no sense to anyone around them. Their financial advisors of the day would have been like, hey, 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 take it easy. This is a risky way to kind of spread your portfolio all on one thing. Remember how hard we've worked. You've got a lot of pearls, trading a lot of pearls for one pearl. That seems kind of strange, right? You're buying this piece of land in West Texas. It doesn't look like much, why do you wanna do that? Why would you liquidate all of your assets to do it? Both of them are so persuaded of the value of what they find that they're willing to part with everything else they have joyfully for the possibility of the treasure that they have found. They both go all in once they know what is available to them. Pastor H.B. Charles said, to find the kingdom of heaven is to be willing to give up all that you have to receive it. To find the kingdom of heaven is to be willing to give up all that you have to receive it. In fact, friends, that is one of the sure ways to know that you have found it in the first place. You see, friends, this is a reasonably undeveloped thought, but I think we have given into a meatloaf sort of approach to our faith where we say, I would do anything for the kingdom. Oh, but I won't do that. And the problem is we have a lot of the I won't do that. And then we wonder why we live such joyless and powerless Christian lives. Remember, we said at the beginning that the value that we attach to something is displayed by how much we are prepared to sacrifice in order to have it. What value are you currently displaying in terms of a life in submission to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ and his magnificent kingdom in the here and now? You see, Jesus warned his followers again and again as he offered them this precious gift. He's like, come get life from me, come get life from me, come get life from me, but no, you're gonna have to carry a cross. No, you're gonna need to deny yourself. No, you will need to have to lose your life in order to find it. Know that you must be born again. Know that you cannot put your hand to the plow and turn back at your previous life. Jesus says, there's a trade, I'm giving you this pearl. <laughs> but you've gotta give up some of the cheap trinkets that keep you from owning this thing that keep you from living in the reality of its blessing. This is not Jesus trying to ruin your life, friend. This is him trying to give us real life, a life of abundance, a life to the full as he describes it, real life. That means letting go of some of the cheap imitations. And friends, when you think about it, in light of what we receive, what we have to let go of is really nothing. It's nothing. We, we just bought a house, which I know is first world problems and all of that. But I was looking at my first mortgage statement yesterday in a little bit of horror <laughs> because it showed the, the trajectory of the next few decades of my life. And it says, hey, in order for you to get a house of this particular value, you have to pay us this much. And those two numbers aren't the same, which I understand, right? They, they're leveraging some, some capital, which I don't have. And they're saying, okay, we'll give that to you, but you've got to give it back to us at this rate. And it's gonna be more over years. You have to pay more than what it is worth because you cannot pay what it is worth. And we still think, we sit with financial advisors and we sit with wise Christian brothers and sisters and we go like, yeah, 
That's a worthwhile trade. You'll sacrifice some other things so that you can have that thing. The deal of the kingdom is scandalous. It says you get Christ and all of his benefits, all of it. But you'll need to lay down some of the small trifling things of this world in order to fully experience it. It's like opening up a mortgage statement and it says, you get a million dollar house. That's not mine, by the way, before you email anyone in concern, that's not what mine cost. You get a million dollar house paid for, but you need to give up your weekly $5 coffee, right? And we're like, man, I love coffee. And, and can't I have both? Can't I live in the reality of both? You see, we have watered down the call of the kingdom with the toxic well of deceit that says that we can have it all. We believe wrongly that we can have the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. We believe wrongly that we can love Jesus and we can pursue mammon. We believe wrongly that we can receive the grace of the king, but we can ignore the commands that he clearly gives us. And friends, it doesn't work. What we get in exchange is the insipid phenomenon of cultural Christianity and a kingdom that ends up not looking precious at all. A kingdom entirely of our own making. A kingdom not of heaven, but purely of this world. You see, Christ stands before us with a priceless offer of life in this remarkable kingdom but it means we need to lay down our own kingdoms in exchange. I've had to learn this lesson over decades of walking with Jesus. I've tried cultural Christianity, it doesn't work. What is Christ asking you to lay down in light of the precious gift of life he has offered you? What are you currently not prepared to lay down? He's been working in me over decades. I've had to lay down (laughs) self-determination. I've had to lay down my desire to have self-determination in terms of ethics and morality and holiness. I thought I could love Jesus, but ignore his very clear instructions of personal holiness that come with his kingdom. You see, if I want his kingdom, I no longer get to self-determine my own behavior. I am held to a standard of holiness in light of the grace that he extends to me. The scriptures tell me, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Now glorify God with your body. Now I have to adhere to that. Friends, I thought I could get the benefits of the kingdom and yet go with the flow of culture when it comes to ethics and morality. I could just be that, that kind of cool Christian who's like, oh man, that guy, he's so surprising because he loves Jesus, but he also just agrees with us on all of these issues. Uh, you just can't do it. See, I have a king and our king defines our ethic. And so I might need to give up acceptance and appearing enlightened on every issue. And and friends, Jesus is gonna do this to us on both sides, in both directions. On personal holiness, he's gonna be way more conservative than any of us. He's gonna draw the lines way more extremely. On neighbor love, he's gonna be way more progressive than any of us are prepared to be and he's asking us to lay down each of those issues in our lives to follow He's taught me that I need to lay down an unbridled pursuit of possessions and prestige and accumulation. Friends, I've had to lay down my comfort idol again and again and again 
and again. You see, I want a kingdom where I can get the benefits of Christ and his people, but I can focus on myself and provide for myself and care for myself and build a life for myself. I gotta lay that down in order to walk in the tremendous blessing of the kingdom and its king and the people that make up that kingdom. What is it for you? Holy Spirit, press into us. What are some of these areas that we're just not willing to lay down in pursuit of our king? Where are you trying to hang on to two kingdoms? Now, some of you, if you're paying attention, I hope you are. Again, I've got no idea. You could have nodded off ages ago. Some of you may question, wait, doesn't this sound close to salvation by works? I thought grace was free. I thought we got this kingdom offer as a free gift of God's love and mercy. Yes, yes and amen. I cannot say that clearly enough. That is a fundamental truth of our faith. Our works cannot ever save us and we must never rely on them to do so. And that free grace that Christ extends to us came at a tremendous cost. It cost our king to come and establish this precious kingdom here on earth and in heaven available for us. And so friends, the kingdom of heaven is precious. The kingdom of heaven is costly and lastly, the king of that kingdom, the king of heaven shows us the great value and the great cost of that kingdom. Our King Jesus sees his kingdom and the people who belong in it as so precious that he willingly paid the ultimate price of his life in order to secure its availability for us. He held nothing back. He went all in and now he offers us a life of the benefits that he won for us. The, the man who found the treasure in the field sold everything he had to buy that field. The merchant who found the priceless pearl sold everything he had to grab hold of that pearl. The king of heaven gave everything he had to purchase you with his very own blood. Wouldn't it be irrational and unwise and ungodly then to be a people who come face to face with the world's greatest treasure and then try to hedge our bets with a compromised life. It's irrational, it makes no sense. And Christ is inviting us away from the misery that it leads to. Our oh, friends, a life submitted to Jesus Christ is a precious thing. There is no one no one like our King Jesus. There is nothing, nothing like the kingdom he offers. And so today, listen, please, Holy Spirit, help us. Listen, awaken us from our slumber, awaken me. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is available. It is magnificently precious. Grab hold of it with all that you have and don't turn back. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the simplicity of the message today that this, this great kingdom is 
precious and costly and available for us to take hold of, but it's gonna, it's gonna require our whole lives in exchange, not to, not to earn it in any way, but in response to the fact that it has been earned for us by our King Jesus. Oh, do something that I cannot do right now, which is stir up our hearts to just remember how precious our King is, how magnificent the life He offers is to us. Lord, some of us have been lulled into weak, compromised existences awaken us today. Please, God. Some of us holding tightly onto some things that we just so desperately want, thinking they will give us life, knowing that they bring us no joy, but still unwilling to relinquish them, Father, whether it be sin, whether it just be self-focus, whether it just be a fear that drives us, Father, help us to relinquish it, to lay it down, to trade it in place for the gift of great life in this marvelous kingdom that starts in the here and now and will be forever celebrated with you in heaven. Help us to practice now. On that day, we won't be holding on to anything. We'll be bowing down at your feet, enjoying you. Help us to start today, Lord. Help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.